Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you came together, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What are you doing? Do you not know, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, for those of you whom I don't know, my name is Andrew. I'm a a pastor here at the Leewood campus, and uh, just welcome. It's great to be here. And if you've been uh, looking at, if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you know we've been looking at this letter to the First Corinthians, and we've learned a lot about this church along the way. We've been here for a while, Uh, and basically, if if we've learned anything about the Corinthian church, we know that it's pretty messed up, like like really messed up. Infighting, incest, remember we had a whole sermon on that, that was great. Lawsuits, (laughs) prostitution, the list goes on. I mean, it reads like an episode of Game of Thrones, right? But it's actually just a Sunday at the church at Corinth. And in a sense, I was thinking about this week, we, we should be thankful, I guess, that they're so dysfunctional because if they weren't, we wouldn't be learning so much about how to not do church. Uh, if you're here last week, uh, Paul has begun to, he switched his focus. He's talking now about issues in corporate worship in Corinth. So when they gather together, he's now talking about here's, here are the issues that we need to address there. And it's, it's not shocking that they have issues when they get together. And Last week, we talked about head coverings in corporate worship, and that's why we let Tom preach that one. Um, that was a hard one. This week, Paul's moving to the Lord's Supper or, it's, or communion, maybe you know it that way. And, and we'll get into more detail here of, of, of all that, but the pressing issue for Paul, and you probably picked up on it as we read scripture, was that during uh, the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's table, even during communion, the church is dividing itself into something like cliques. Some people are the haves, and some people are the have-nots, and it's, and it's affecting how they worship together. Now, naturally, cliques got me thinking about high school, right? Because 
That was supposed to be funny. The, the Atlantic, um, <laughs> I thought that was universal. Maybe that was just me. Uh, the Atlantic ran an article last year on a study that had been done to explain, you know, why are there cliques and these barriers? They're so common in schools. And the article started this way. If you remember high school as being an occasionally awkward series of confrontations between tribes of kids, that is, in fact, a sign that you went to high school. Um, <laughs> Not every school is is probably like that, but is there any more obvious proof of the human tendency to put barriers up between ourselves than in high school? And I I remember uh, one year into school, or one year in school for me in high school, I was assigned to the second lunch hour. So we had two lunch hours. There wasn't enough room to have everyone take lunch together. So there were two separate times. And uh, none of my friends, I got assigned the second hour. None of my my good friends were there with me. And I got my lunch kind of early in the semester and I walked out to the seating area and my, my stomach just dropped because I'm looking at these tables where I can sit and it's like, okay, too cool, too rich, too athletic, too smart. Um, and I didn't fit, just so you know, I didn't fit in any of those tables. Um, <laughs> in case you were curious, why do, we, why do we do this to ourselves, right? It's awful. And it doesn't end in school. Career Builder just did a survey and almost half of the participants noted the presence of cliques in the workplace. And of those participants, about 20% said they watched a certain TV show or a movie just so they'd be able to have a conversation with a coworker the next day. And 19% uh, said they made fun of someone else or pretended not to like them in order to fit in. 17% pretended to like a certain food. 9%, I love this, took smoke breaks to fit in with the, the smoking crew. 10%. Don't, didn't reveal uh, political affiliation, 10% didn't reveal personal hobbies, and 9% uh, kept their religious affiliations and beliefs a secret to avoid being excluded. That's the workplace. And frankly, it's, it's worse than that because after school or after work, you come home and you turn on the news and you're confronted by a world of barriers, religious barriers, racial barriers, economic barriers, political barriers, and you see them right here in Kansas City all the time. You don't have to drive far. And I hate to say it, but even the church, even within our walls, we put up barriers between one another. And almost everyone realizes that this is happening, that our society has these barriers, and almost everyone agrees that it's wrong, that it's unsustainable, that it's evil, and it shouldn't be this way, but no one knows how to fix it. And whether it's in our interpersonal relationships, one-on-one with people, or in our geopolitical policies, we cannot escape the sad truth that there is always an us, and there's always a them in our experience. So how do we fix this? Well, Christianity and Paul in our text gives a very simple answer, and the answer is bread and wine, communion. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. This communion meal has the power to break barriers, to heal every hurt. It symbolizes in many ways and empowers every apology. It points to the ultimate source of all forgiveness. This meal, communion, if we let it, if we practice it diligently, can break every barrier. Well, how does it do that? Well, that's where Paul goes in our text this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 11, if you haven't done that already, I'm going to reread, starting from 17, just a couple verses. Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, 
It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So, so here's, here's what's going on. When the early church took communion, it was likely a part of a larger meal taken together called a love feast. That's, the, that, that's in the book of Jude, verse 12, this church love feast. It was not unlike a church potluck. Everybody brought something, if you could, and everybody shared what was brought. And somewhere in the midst of that meal, bread was broken, the cup was shared, and communion was taken, not too differently than how we do at the end of a church service here at Christ Community. But the Corinthian church was a very diverse place economically. Okay, this is an urban church, lots of different kinds of people coming together. And as best we can tell, the affluent members, the wealthier members of the church would come uh, to the Sunday love feast a little bit earlier than everybody else. So the, 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 the lower class, the working class, Sunday was a work day in the ancient world. It wasn't a day off. Uh, so they would come a little later. So the affluent members of the church would come a little early. They brought all the best stuff because they had money. And instead of waiting for everyone else to arrive, they just helped themselves. They just started. And basically, as awful as this sounds, they were, they were pre-gaming the Lord's Supper is what they were doing. And by the time the poor working class arrived, you know, the, the, their brothers and sisters in Christ, most of the food was gone. And some of the people were actually drunk by the time people arrived. And what came to my mind was, it's the five o'clock somewhere service, right? And, and what was meant to be this powerful symbol of community and inclusion in the church became another painful reminder of the barriers these poor people dealt with all day long. Even in the church, they went hungry and they went without. And Paul is saying, this is not the Lord's Supper that you are taking. You can tell yourself all day long that what you're doing is worshiping Jesus, but you are not. In fact, what you're doing is so bad, you might, you might as well not come to church. It would be better for you not to gather together at all than to do what you're doing, to put these barriers up between the rich and the poor. And my hunch is that as the, the rich members heard that, they protested and they, listen, Paul, this is just the way it is. The rich people sit here, the poor people sit here. That's just how society works. And they were right. That was how society worked. But Paul says, not in the church, not at the Lord's table. That's just the way it is, is not good enough. Now we read this, or at least I do, and I think, well, yeah, Paul, you tell him. This is, this is Jerry Springer bad, right? I mean, this is obviously wrong, at least to us. There's probably nothing in our relationships today, probably, that's as blatantly discriminatory as this. But just because our barriers and our church today are, are more subtle does not mean they are less harmful or that we should take them less seriously. Because the truth is, and this is our first point, the truth is we are, just like the Corinthians, expert barrier builders. 
In fact, we've gotten so good at this, I think, we don't, we don't even really notice it anymore. And I think part of this is because we're American, or that, that, that's our context. And in, so, in most of our society, which is different from other cultures, we choose our community in a way that most of the world doesn't. There's no clan, there's no tribe that you belong to. So we choose our community and we come to the church and we tend to apply the same rules. We have a tendency to come to church and to ask, okay, now that I'm here, now I need to make my community. Now, now don't get me wrong, making friends is a good thing and no one can tell you who your friends are, but there's a subtle danger in how we do it. Because under the guise of choosing friends, we can actually just be excluding people and reinforcing barriers. And before you know it, the people we know and the people we care about in the church, they all look like we do. They all think like we do. They have jobs like we do. They make the same amount of money that we do. They're the same age that we are. They go to the same school that we do. You see that list can go on and on. And we hardly notice it, but the barriers are there and you can see them. Now here's the problem with that. The whole point of church and Christian community, this is Paul's point, is that you don't have a choice. You don't get to choose. You can choose your friends, you can choose the people that you trust to confide in and spend more time with intentionally, but in the church, you do not get to choose whom you value, whom you love, and whom you serve, regardless if they think differently or look differently or vote differently, whatever, than you do. The church and who is here is God's choice, not ours. Your community is a given. You aren't called to be best friends with everyone here. That's obviously impossible. But you're called to love everyone here. And barriers, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant they might seem, are an attack on God's choice. They're an attack on God's church. So we need to locate our barriers. I know this is subtle work, it's hard to do, but we need to locate our barriers. And notice I am not saying we need to ask ourselves if we have barriers. That's not the question. We all have them. We all have barriers. The question is, where are they? And the best way I could think to do this was to ask just some diagnostic questions. If you like to write things down, write these down, think about them. But let's, do it. let's, let's think on these a little bit together right now. So first question, who is it that you tend to avoid at church? Who do you avoid? Maybe this is a specific person you don't enjoy very much, you've had a conflict with in the past. It could be a whole group of people. It could be an old community group that you've left or you've had a falling out with. Or maybe even within your community group, if you're, if you're in one, people really get along, but there's that one person, there's that one couple, bless their heart, right? <laughs> that, that just, they just don't quite fit in. They're too serious or they're too weird or they're hard to, I mean, whatever it is, you find yourself inviting people over from the group and you're thinking of ways to not invite that person. Or it could be a whole class of people. I don't want to be ignorant here. None of us, none of us is immune to racial prejudice, to economic prejudice. Perhaps you find yourself nervous or uncomfortable around certain kinds of people in the church. That's a barrier. Even, even age can be a barrier. Someone is too old to relate to. They don't get it. They're not with it. Or they're too young to take seriously. Why would I talk to that? Why would I learn their name? Why would I have a conversation with them? So who do you avoid? Whether it's conscious or not, who do you avoid? 
Next question, who is them to you? Who's them? When you talk about these people, they're them. They could be Democrats and liberals, they could be Republicans and conservatives, but either way, you and them don't mix. Who do you judge? You see them and you think, at least I'm not her, at least I'm not him. At least my marriage isn't that rough. My kids aren't that bad. I would, never, I would never do that. Who are the people you talk about when they're not there? Who do you judge? Finally, whose opinions do you take seriously? Whose opinions do you take seriously? Do they all happen to have a similar background to you? A similar education to you? A similar job to you? Do they tend to be people who can help your career? Who can add value? who can help you succeed? Now, obviously, these questions, we could, we could go on and on with those. But we must locate our barriers because we all have them. The church at Corinth had theirs. It's obvious to us today. It wasn't to them. What are ours? What are our barriers? Of course, it's one thing to locate your barriers and to name them. It's another thing to break them. We are expert barrier builders, but the next thing we have to know is that Jesus breaks the only barrier that matters. This is where Paul goes next. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Paul is quoting Jesus here. Most of your Bibles probably uh, note that for you. And he's, and, and he's alluding to the Last Supper, the final meal Jesus ate with his disciples before he was crucified. Now, just before Jesus left his disciples, one of the last things he taught them to do was to eat a meal together. That's where the Lord, that's where communion comes from. Paul's reminding us of that story. Now, why is he doing that? Well, you also have to remember that the Last Supper was a Passover meal. What we call communion and the Lord's Supper is really based upon the Jewish Passover. And in the book of Exodus, the final plague in Egypt, most of you know this story, was the play, it's called the plague of the firstborn. And God said, take a lamb, to, he said this to Israel, said, take a lamb, sacrifice it, and spread its blood on the doorpost of your home. And any home covered by the blood, the angel of death will pass over that home and spare the family. That's why it's called the Passover. Now, most of us, like I said, we know that story. You've at least seen it in a movie or on TV, if not actually read the story yourself in the Bible. We, what we often fail to grasp in that story is the radical social, cultural, and religious statement that God is making in it. Because on that night, it did not matter if you were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, rich or poor, young or old, you either lost a lamb that night or you lost a son. And all the things that we define ourselves around, the barriers that we create, the identities that we build, the accomplishments that we achieve, the Passover undoes all of them. We are all spiritually the same. We are under the judgment of God. And if not our blood, then the blood of a substitute. 
That's the lesson of the Passover story. And there's only one barrier that matters, just one. And Jesus, you think about it, during his ministry, he confronted almost every barrier in the ancient world. He empowered women, he loved sinners, he cared for and lifted up the poor and the oppressed. He healed the sick and the unclean. He ministered to Gentiles and to Roman soldiers. He talked with prostitutes, he ate with tax collectors. He dismissed in his ministry almost every conceivable social barrier possible except one the barrier between a holy God and a sinful humanity. Now that may sound shocking to you, but the Bible teaches that our fundamental universal human problem is that there is a barrier between us and God. And on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and Jesus took wine and he said, tonight I will break the barrier between you and God with my death, with my body broken, and my bloodshed, I am the true lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul, wants, he, Paul is saying, do not miss this. The Lord's Supper reminds us that one barrier matters. There's only one that matters and it's been broken and that exposes all other human barriers as simple, foolish pride. Because what causes divisions among people? What causes divisions among classes and races and gender? It's pride. That somehow, some way, I'm better than you for whatever reason. But the Lord's Supper reminds you, reminds me that apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, you and I are undone. There is nothing that we are or that we've done or that we have that can save us. Nothing. That's why Paul says, how dare you take the Lord's Supper when there are divisions among you, when there are barriers between you. He says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul's saying when you take communion and there are divisions among you, it's like crucifying the Lord all over again. You are trampling on his free gift of grace as if you don't need his blood on your doorpost. But you do. The Lord's Supper breaks the only barrier that matters. So how do, how do we respond to that? Well, we remember what Jesus has already broken on our behalf. We remember what Jesus has already broken. Jesus, notice, does not simply say, eat and drink the Lord's Supper. He says, eat and drink in remembrance of me. The real point of taking communion is to remember something. Now, remembering is more than recalling. There's a difference, and I'll prove it to you. If later this week, your mother calls you and says, you forgot Mother's Day, which by the way, it's Mother's Day, so if you didn't know. If your mother calls you later this week and says you forgot Mother's Day and you say, no, I didn't, I remembered, I just didn't do anything about it. Is that a helpful response to what your mother's just said? Well, no, because remembering is active. It responds to the truth that is recalled. It participates in the Lord's Supper emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and physically. If you're taking the Lord's Supper and you're bitter or you're angry or you're indifferent towards someone else in the church, it's either because you do not believe that Jesus died for you or it means that you aren't remembering at a heart level that Jesus died for you. 
when we remember what Jesus has already broken, we see that the communion line is a spiritual bankruptcy line. That's what it is. When you're waiting your turn to come and take the bread and the cup, it's not an inconvenience to you. It's an opportunity to remember that every time you get in line, you're acknowledging to the world publicly that you are a complete and utter spiritual failure. You needed an innocent man. You needed God himself to die in your place. You are spiritually bankrupt. Nothing to offer. And there's no room for pride in a bankruptcy line, is there? We aren't being asked to remember simply that Jesus died. We're being asked to remember why he died. He died because of me and because of you. And if that's true, and I'm convinced that it is, it has that meal, that has the power to create a kind of community that the world can only dream about. Where the barriers that exist outside these walls do not exist within them, where things like money and power and prestige and race do not determine our destinies, our value, or our relationships. You see? You see what's possible here? This is powerful stuff, but there's a, there's a subtle danger in the church with a message like this, and I know I feel it. If you're newer to church, this may be a lot of new information for you. That's great. If you've been coming for a while, there's probably not one thing I've said so far that you didn't at one level already know. And you may be thinking, okay, come on, let's get on with it. Let's take communion. Let's get the worship team back up here. <laughs> and that may be a good idea for other reasons, um, because you don't like me, but uh, I'm just kidding, I know. But that's not, <laughs> it's not a good reason to say you want that because you've heard this before. Don't forget, that's exactly what the Corinthians were thinking. There's nothing in this chapter that Paul has not told them already. Look back at verse 23. Paul's adamant. He says, what I receive from the Lord, I have already delivered to you. Paul says, we've talked about this, but you did not pay attention. You did not take this seriously. That's why he says in, in verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul's saying some of you are dying because you're not taking this as a community. You're not taking this seriously. Now how's that for generating interest in a sermon, right? That's a great introduction. I'm gonna use that sometime. If you don't listen, you might die. Uh, <laughs> That's not exactly what Paul's saying here. And I, and I also don't think he's saying, if you abuse the Lord's Supper ever, God will take your life. I mean, none of us come worthy to the Lord's table. He is saying that God may use harsh things like sickness and even death in the community to wake us up spiritually. That's what God's discipline is. That's the, Paul, the word Paul uses. It's a warning. It's a reminder of what is really important. Warnings are scary, they're meant to be scary, but they're also a reminder that it's not too late. It's not too late to take this seriously. It's not too late to pay attention. God has not given up on us yet. And God uses the regular practice of communion to wake us up. So how do we do that? How do we wake up? 
well, two practical takeaways from this text on how to do that. This is, where, this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, first, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Which is another way of saying the biblical concept of repent. Repent. Turn away from your bitterness toward others before you take communion. Turn away from, repent of your prejudice. Repent of your pride. Root it out of your heart. Ask for God's help and forgiveness and then take the cup and the bread. We don't practice communion regularly to keep things interesting as a worship team. We do it because we need to constantly repent. Constantly. To examine ourselves and to ask for God's grace. This is an opportunity to do that. Examine yourself. Second, discern the body. That's what Paul says in verse 29. Discern the body. Now what he means by that is something like remember the community or practice unity, practice unity. Don't just desire unity. Everybody desires unity. Practice unity. Go and find the person in the church you're angry at that you must reconcile with or that you're bitter towards or at least make a commitment, make a plan to do so before you take of the communion elements and don't, or, or don't take it at all. And instead, pray and ask for God's help. That's totally fine. There's nothing magical about communion. Sometimes the best thing you can do is be honest with yourself and say, I am not in a position to take communion right now. There's some things I need to deal with first. That's the point. That's why we do it. But whatever we do, we cannot wait to make it right. Don't wait to make it right. Unity in the church, breaking down barriers is never something we wait to do or put off or ignore. This meal breaks barriers if we let it, if we take it seriously. Because when we take it seriously, we remember together that God did not hold a grudge against us and he absolutely should have, but he didn't. God did not need to reconcile with us, but instead of holding that against us, he pursued us. He did not wait To make it right, he loved us first while we were still enemies. So I think the best thing for us to do at this point is to practice this together. Communion takes practice. It really does. It looks simple, but it's not. It shapes us and it trains us over the lifetime, over our lifetimes to break barriers. That's one of the reasons we do this regularly. But now I want to do something a little different today. Normally, I would kind of quickly invite you to stand up and take communion. There's, there's stations all over the room. I don't want to do that just yet. I want us to pause. Let us examine ourselves. Let us discern the body. My hope is that in the course of this time, God has been prompting you during this message to take action on something. Is it a person? Is it an apology you need to make? Is it a conversation that you need to have? Is it something that you need to let go of? Whatever that is. I want us to take one minute to reflect on that thing. Think about it. Ask for God's help. Write it down. Make a plan. Take action. And then I'll close us in prayer. Please bow your heads with me in silence.
God, thank you for working in us now. By your spirit, give us grace to remember together the death of your son on our behalf until he comes again. Amen. There are stations all around the room. Find the one nearest to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to the table. If you're not a follower of Jesus or you need this time to sit and reflect and keep thinking and praying, that's fine. Take it. Take that time. Whenever you're ready, come to the station closest to you. Please come.